0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. One month ago, at this time, the number of lives that had been lost to coronavirus was just over 12,000. Right now, we just hit another green milestone, passing 75,000. The death toll officially standing at 75,054. Just for some perspective on that, take a a look at at this photo. This is Michigan State's Spartan Stadium. It holds just over 75,000 people, meaning there are more people that have died from coronavirus in this country than you see in this photo in just a few short months. Weeks ago, Dr. Deborah Burks, who heads the White House Coronavirus Task Force, asked the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, for specific guidelines for how businesses, schools, restaurants and such can responsibly reopen. The CDC drafted a document and CNN has learned the Trump administration has rejected that guidance. It's something of a theme here. The politicians pushing back against medical and scientific expertise. Governors around the country are taking steps to reopen without having reached the benchmarks in the White House's guidelines. And while experts say widespread testing is key to saving lives and responsibly reopening, President Trump does not seem to grasp the concept, saying in the Oval Office yesterday, quote, in a way, by doing all this testing, we make ourselves look bad. We should clarify, that's testing for you that he's talking about. The White House tests its officials and visitors regularly. In fact, the White House official confirms that a member of the U.S. Navy who serves as one of President Trump's personal assistants has tested positive for coronavirus. And this surveillance testing has allowed the White House to identify and now isolate that infected individual, keeping White House officials safer and good. They should. That's exactly what health experts want to do on a widespread basis. So it's not just White House officials and President Trump who can go to work and feel safe. And as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports, even though President Trump just said he had very little contact with this Navy officer, the president will be tested daily now to make sure he is free of the virus that has infected more than 1.2 million Americans.
2: It's a big deal, the Oval Office. Today,
3: there is the first known case of coronavirus inside the West Wing.
4: Yeah, it's a little bit strange.
3: A member of the U.S. Navy who serves as one of President Trump's personal valets has tested positive upsetting President Trump when he found out, and raising concerns about his own possible exposure. The valets are members of an elite military unit assigned to the White House, who worked incredibly close to the president and the first family.
4: I've had very little uh, contact, personal contact with this gentleman. Uh, know who he is, good person, but I've had very little contact. Mike has had very little contact with him.
3: Sources tell CNN the unidentified male exhibited symptoms while on White House grounds this week, though it's unclear when he was last in the Oval Office. In a statement, a White House spokesman told CNN the president and vice president have since tested negative for the virus and they remain in great health. The president is doing fantastically today, as is the vice president. Despite CDC guidance issued by his own administration, President Trump has resisted wearing a mask so far by citing how often he and his senior staff are tested. As he hosted medical professionals at the White House yesterday, a reporter pointed out that no one was social distancing or covering their face.
4: Look, I'm trying to be nice. I'm signing a bill and you criticize us.
3: The White House hasn't said whether today's news will change the president's behavior going forward as one of his top aides deflected. And I think if anybody should start wearing masks and showing more respect, it should be the media. According to the Associated Press, Trump has told advisors that wearing a mask would send the wrong message as he focuses on reopening the country. He says he wore one briefly in Arizona this week before later removing it.
4: I had it on back, backstage. But they said you didn't need it.
3: CNN has also learned today that the CDC prepared detailed guidelines for reopening the country, but the White House rejected them and asked for changes. The guidelines put together by health experts offered more details about reopening schools, churches, and restaurants. But an administration official told CNN the White House felt they were overly prescriptive because guidance in rural Tennessee shouldn't be the same as guidance for urban New York City. The press secretary reiterated this week that the White House wants governors to implement their own guidelines. We have this beautiful concept called federalism, which means that the states lead on this. Now, Jake, we should note that these valets to the president have not been wearing masks for the next for the last several weeks. The question is whether or not today's news changes that. We do know what will be changing is the president and the vice president are going from being tested weekly to now being tested daily. He said today, though, Jake, he did not answer questions about whether or not the West Wing is being deep cleaned or whether or not he is going to quarantine for two weeks. As we know that health experts have recommended for people who come in contact with someone who has tested positive for coronavirus.
1: All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House. Thanks so much. Joining us now, Dr. Richard Besser. He's the former acting director of the CDC uh, under the Obama administration. Uh, During the H1N1 crisis, we should know. Dr. Besser, I want to take through the CDC six categories uh, that they were issuing recommendations for. They were for child care programs, schools and day camps, communities of faith, employers with vulnerable workers, restaurants and bars and mass transit administrators. You have seen this guidance that the White House rejected. What did you make of it? Was it good advice? Well,
5: you know, this is exactly what, what states are are looking for. You know, as as we're moving to reopen aspects of the economy, you want to do it slowly, carefully, and based on the best public health science and, and advice. And what CDC pulled together here is is really a terrific document that lays out for each of those settings what you should do during different phases. So when, you know, the cases are just going down, and then after a couple weeks, if they continue to go down, and and, and so on. This is the kind of guidance that states could use and adapt locally based on the conditions that they're having in their states.
1: So a Trump administration administration official told CNN that the guidelines were rejected because they were too prescriptive. And they also said, quote, guidance in rural Tennessee shouldn't be the same guidance for urban New York City. Now, I guess that's true when it comes to if you're standing in the middle of a field versus uh, standing in Times Square. But should a restaurant in rural Tennessee... Where there are fewer cases per capita than in New York, should that restaurant not adhere to these CDC recommendations that, for instance, the restaurant only operated limited capacity?
5: Well, you know, CDC puts out recommendations, and it's up to states to then adopt those and 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 decide whether to go forward with them. But you would think that a restaurant that holds the same number of people in Tennessee, uh, that's in the same phase of the of the pandemic, should do the same thing as a restaurant in Pennsylvania or, or New Jersey, where where I am. You know, Jake, if, if we move forward with opening the economy without these kind of measures, if if these are purely voluntary, if workplaces uh, can decide for themselves what they're going to do, we're going to see the same burden put on the same populations, black Americans, Latinos, frontline workers who have just been getting slammed during this pandemic. They're going to be at risk if, if these kind of standards aren't, aren't adhered to.
1: Healthcare experts say, including you, that frequent and repeated testing is the key to reopening the economy. That way, the virus can be identified and isolated and that individual kept away and it doesn't spread. Um, yesterday, the White House press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, said that the notion that everyone needs to be tested is just simply nonsensical because they'll just need to be tested an hour later. Um, but the White House is deploying rapid results testing for their own staff. President Trump is now going to be tested uh, every single day. So I- I'm confused. There seems to be two different messages here. There is the testing that goes on at the White House. And then they don't think that the rest of us should be entitled to they- that same kind of Protection And look, obviously, the White House is not the same as your local office, but isn't that kind of testing what will enable us to get to a reopening of the economy?
5: You know, there, there are different models in terms of, of how much testing should be scaled up. Uh, and, and not everyone agrees that you should test everybody every day. I, I don't think that's the way to go but you have to get to a point where you're able to test people even with the mildest of symptoms. And right now, we're, we're, we're in, in most places, the people who are being tested are people who are quite sick to determine, do they have COVID? Do they need to be hospitalized? You wanna be able to pick up people who have mild disease because they're, they're gonna do well. And thankfully, most people who get COVID will do well, but those people can spread it to other people who may be at high risk. So you want to be able to identify all those people, track the people they've had contact with, and then very importantly, provide safe places so that everybody can isolate or quarantine and and one new case doesn't lead to another little local outbreak.
1: But Dr. Besser, how does that square with the fact that um, so many uh, asymptomatic people are contagious? And in fact, I've heard that it's possible people are most contagious when they're asymptomatic. I don't know if President Trump's valet had any symptoms when he was Tested and tested positive uh, for coronavirus. Um, but I've been told by other health officials that this kind of surveillance testing is what will enable us to isolate the virus. Uh, obviously, I don't, as you noted, no one is saying every single person should be tested every single day. That's a straw man from the White House right. press secretary. But doesn't there need to be such widespread testing that people know they can be confident that it's okay, it's safe to go to school, it's safe to go to work, it's safe to send your kids to camp because there has been testing and, and there's at least that kind of precaution? Yeah,
5: I mean, the issue of asymptomatic people is, is, is a really challenging one, Jake, because at this point, we don't know what percentage that is, but there is evidence they can transmit. For high-risk groups, so in a nursing home, you know, that would be a setting where I'd say, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to test people who are, who are asymptomatic. I think we're, we're so far from even being able to test people with mild symptoms that, that you know, discussing whether everyone everyone needs to be tested is, is is not really very worthwhile. But if we can get to the point of testing mild people we, we and, and and do that contact tracing, which means building up that public health workforce and isolating people, we'll be able to knock this down to something that's that's manageable. And that's the goal here. No one thinks that any of these measures are going to get rid of coronavirus. But if we can get it to a manageable level, so our healthcare system can take care of not just people who have coronavirus, but all of the people with medical conditions that, that haven't been treated because of all the effort around coronavirus. If we can get to that point, our economy can get back to work, not as, as it was three months ago. But to a level where 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 more people have jobs, the economy is 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 generating money so that people can take care of their
1: basic needs. And we've seen this chart. uh, It's a graph that shows um, everywhere in the country except for New York. And the numbers of coronavirus cases are going up. New York, it's going down, although that was the most severely hit place. And yet most of these states are reopening. Uh, even though they have not met the White House guidelines for 14 straight days of uh, the chart going down, of the number of, of new cases going down, that must concern you.
5: Well, the, the guidance when it came out in terms of trends and downward trends uh, was a really good sign because that's really what you need to see. You need to see that ongoing trend. You need to see that there's there's excess capacity in your healthcare system to take care of people, that everyone has personal protective equipment. There's there's a number of factors you need to look at. Uh, but you're right. If you look at the trends around the nation and you look at a, a number of the states that are that are opening up their economy, um, it's a really ri- risky proposition. And I worry that we're going to see very significant outbreaks in, in many of those places.
1: Dr. Richard Besser, always a pleasure and honor to to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. The number of Americans out of work since the pandemic began, now more than the entire population of Texas. The devastating new unemployment figures, that's next. Plus, food processing plants, the epicenter of many recent outbreaks. Coming up, the stunning comments blaming infected employees for the surge. Stay with us. Today, a new battle scar on the U.S. economy from coronavirus. 3.2 million Americans filed for unemployment for the first time just last week. Before the pandemic, unemployment claims barely cracked 200,000. Since the shutdown started in mid-March, 33 million people in the U.S., or one in five American workers, have filed for weekly unemployment benefits. And sadly, that's only a snapshot of the economic pain and does not measure factors such as furloughs or pay cuts or layoffs. I want to bring in CNN business anchor Julia Chatterley. Uh, Julia, we've had these staggering figures for almost two months now. Uh, it might get repetitive, but I, I, you know we just can't uh, overstate how unprecedented and, and disastrous this is.
6: We can't. We are in uncharted waters in every way. And the virus was just like a tidal wave. And you're absolutely right. We're not capturing how bad the damage was. If you add in every worker that's lost a job, lost hours or lost pay. We're probably talking about half of the entire workforce, Jake. These have been heartbreaking, damaging weeks.
1: The White House predicts that tomorrow's unemployment numbers for April uh, will hit 20 percent. That's Great Depression level. And it's obviously a far cry from where we were three months ago when the economy was pretty strong.
6: We've gone from 50-year lows in unemployment to approaching 80-year highs. This is the definition of a jobs depression. The question now for policymakers is how do you bring those jobs back? And more importantly, I think, how do you do it safely? I've spoken to two economists this week that say we will still have a 10% unemployment rate at the end of this year. So that's... Millions of jobs lost in the last three months, but it's also millions of jobs gained from where we are today, and that's the reality, and also the crazy of COVID-19.
1: Earlier this week, um, you and I discussed J. Crew as the first retailer mm. to file bankruptcy in this crisis. Now, Neiman Marcus, uh, you you think Neiman Marcus, Marcus rather, might might hit harder? Why?
6: I think we're marking the end of an era for these big, iconic store brands and the shopping mall or how it's looked. It follows the collapse of Barneys in New York last year. The problem is exiting bankruptcy during a pandemic when stores are shut and consumer spending is so dramatically reduced is a real challenge here. There's a warning alarm going off here for other brands like Lord & Taylor, JCPenney, CS2. They're now the ones to watch.
1: Also a huge reversal by Frontier Airlines, that low-cost carrier tried to make money um, having customers pay to keep the middle seats empty. That that didn't go over pretty well.
6: It absolutely didn't. Some might call this a pandemic profiteering, Jake. You pay for everything extra on a budget airline, but it seems we stop short of paying extra for safety under the guise of, quote, more room. Some might also call this situational survival for a budget airline that says ripping out a third of those seats is going to raise seat prices or ticket prices by 50 percent. And this is a key. Do those costs then get passed on? Because for all the outrage, the risk here is that flyers pay a higher price either way.
1: All right, Julia Chatterley, CNN Business Anchor, thank you so much. As always, coming up next, anger over face mask requirements.
5: They're in violation of my constitutional and civil rights.
1: Sparking some hostile confrontations as the nation tries to adjust to this new normal. Stay with us. Drug maker Moderna said today that its coronavirus vaccine has been approved for phase two of development with the hopes that it could ramp up production by the summer or the fall. But without a vaccine and a huge number of cases coming from asymptomatic people, it is hard to see how the 40-plus states beginning to reopen will not see even more infections spiking in a few weeks. And as CNN's Athena Jones reports, several states are already reopening despite already seeing a spike in new cases.
7: New developments today on the vaccine front. Biotech company Moderna announcing the FDA has approved phase two trials of their vaccine, bringing the company one step closer to the final phase, large scale clinical trials. The company has never gotten a product to market, but hopes for approval next year. But there is bad news on the testing front. The director of the National Institutes of Health saying today the Abbott ID Now machine used for rapid coronavirus tests has about a 15 percent false negative rate. The president touted the test last month.
4: Abbott, it's a brand new uh,
7: technology, brand new test. It's great. It's five minutes, boom, you put it in. New infections continue to climb in at least 19 states, including Minnesota, where some businesses have been allowed to reopen. And while the rate of new cases, new hospitalizations and deaths continue to decline in New York state, New York City is now operating a long-term disaster morgue in Brooklyn, where bodies will be stored inside refrigerated trucks.
4: You can see how long it takes to slow it down and reduce the number of deaths. And they're coming down at a, a painful a uh, slow level of decline
7: states and localities across the country taking different approaches while florida has begun to reopen restrictions remain in place in its three hardest hit counties we'll hopefully be uh, you know able to go forward soon in southern florida miami beach extending its safer at home order for another week there's no pandemic meanwhile outrage at a south florida supermarket from a customer who wasn't allowed inside because he wasn't wearing a mask right to buy groceries and in a letter to the community elected officials in utah county utah said after two companies refused to follow quarantine guidelines 68 of their employees tested positive need to take these recommendations seriously claiming they've made changes the three largest pork plants shut down due to the pandemic all resuming operations today and professional sports taking tentative steps toward a return The NBA announcing players can return to practice facilities tomorrow. Major League Soccer players already training again. Happy to be back. While the NFL is set to release its season schedule tonight. And there is more news out of California. The state will begin reopening tomorrow, but health officials warn it is not a return to normal. There will be modifications. Uh, For instance, they're encouraging stores uh, not to have cash payment at a register, but to use click and swipe methods. Also, uh, the governor announcing or confirming, I should say, that California's first uh, case of coronavirus originated in a nail salon. Governor Gavin Newsom saying the whole thing started in the state of California. The first known case of community spread in a nail salon. He was explaining why salons are not part of the reopening phase. They're going to need higher levels of protection uh, and, and that sort of thing before they're going to be allowed to reopen. But pretty interesting news out of California. Jake.
1: All right, Athena Jones, thank you so much. And joining me now, CNN chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta. Sanjay, great to see you as always. The Moderna vaccine goes into phase two, then potentially phase three. Tell us more. What does that look like?
2: I mean, this is this is fast, Jake. I mean, you typically to get to this point already is a couple, three years so. We should, uh, you know, find that somewhat hopeful. Phase two, uh, you know, typically is to see if this thing is starting to show any evidence that it, that it works, that it's effective. Uh, sometimes in phase two, they look for what are called efficacy signals, starting to see these little hints that it works. And uh, as uh, Dr. Fauci's talked about, if they see enough of these sort of efficacy signals, they may start to manufacture this virus even before they get final phase three results, just because they want to be ahead of the game. But this is this is moving uh, you know, pretty quickly. They're also you know, sort of blurring the lines, look for safety and effectiveness at the same time to try and make this go faster. Obviously, that's what everyone wants to accomplish. Jake.
1: How optimistic are you about Moderna's vaccine and how is it different from the dozens of others of other vaccines that are in development right now? Well, you know,
2: this type of vaccine, which is called an mRNA vaccine or messenger RNA vaccine, has never been done before. There's never been one of these before. They started working on it with uh, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, which was also a coronavirus. So they're building on some of that knowledge, but there's never been one that's completed. So just putting that as a preface. But, you know, I think there is reason for optimism. This is a vaccine project that the federal government has put nearly half a billion dollars behind. Uh, Dr. Fauci described the phase one process and the, uh, the enrollment of that trial as breaking land speed records. And, you know, we got to see if it's effective, but there's, there's good reason to believe that this could, this could at least show some effectiveness. Does it get through phase three? Does it become the, the vaccine? We have to wait and see. But it's just basically using that genetic code uh, as opposed to using the virus itself as a vaccine.
1: All right. But until we get to a vaccine, testing obviously remains a huge component to a safe reopening, as you and I have been discussing for months. I want you to take a listen to Dr. Francis Collins, director for the National Institutes of Health, talking about the rapid response tests that are offered by the company Abbott.
5: I think the other concern has been that it does have about a 15 percent false uh, negative rate. If you're in a circumstance where you really, really don't want to miss a diagnosis of somebody who's already carrying the virus, uh, you'd like to have something that has a higher sensitivity than that.
1: 15 percent false negative rate. I'm a layman, but that sounds kind of high.
5: Yeah,
2: I mean, that means that 15 out of 100 people will be told that they don't have the virus. And in fact, they do you layer upon that, Jake, the fact that uh, you don't have to have symptoms. Uh, you know, It can be asymptomatic and still spread the virus. So the scenario could be 15 times out of 100 that someone feels fine, they get the test, it says they're negative, and so they're out and about, and that leads to more spread. That's the concern. Now, this company, Abbott, we've been talking to them as well. They say that they've identified a specific problem that led to that high false negative rate, that poor sensitivity. Uh, They're addressing that problem. It's a particular one of the one of these mediums that we talk about in the testing process. So uh, hopefully they'll get that fixed, but it's absolutely important to get test results early to make sure they're accurate and make sure those tests are are easily available.
1: And some doctors are urging the continued use uh, of the HIV drugs, uh, two HIV drugs, to treat severely ill patients with coronavirus, even though a recent study found no significant difference in recovery time between patients taking the drugs and those who were not. As a physician, what do you make of that?
2: This is a big discussion in the medical community right now, Jake. Uh, this particular regimen of drugs, uh, lopinavir and ritonavir. Uh, there was an article in the New England Journal, a letter in the New England Journal, basically saying, you know, we've gone back and looked at the data that showed it didn't work. And on our secondary analysis, we're finding some evidence that it did seem to reduce mortality. We're finding some evidence that it was underpowered to look at the overall disease. So there's been a lot of optimism around this. I think a lot of people were surprised when those results came back that it, that it didn't work. So I think it's prompted this, these you know reinvestigations. My guess is we're going to see another trial around this. It, the first trial did not show that it worked, but they're, they're looking for more evidence, I think, at this point.
1: All right, Dr. Sanjay Gupta with all the latest on the medical front. Thank you so much. We appreciate yeah. it. As always, and be sure to tune in tonight for CNN's Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Fact versus Fears hosted by Sanjay and Anderson Cooper. Their guests tonight include former Vice President Al Gore and film director Spike Lee. That's tonight at 8 p.m. right here on CNN. Coming up next, one state's possible success story, how it started as number one in coronavirus deaths and now it's not even in the top 10. Stay with us. Early aggressive action may explain why the pandemic is not worse in Washington state, the first state to confirm a case of coronavirus in the U.S. back in January. Now, new cases still fluctuate, but Washington state has managed to keep the death toll relatively low compared to other states. All the more remarkable, considering Washington was the first to face the outbreak in the U.S. CNN's Sarah Seidner now explains for us why.
8: (laughs) This ER in suburban Seattle was in the first U.S. epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak. Describe what that was like. It was a little chaotic. Two months later, it's a symbol of how to contain the virus. Washington state has less than 1,000 COVID deaths, while densely populated New York has more than 25,000. We're down to probably 10 to 15 percent of what we were seeing with COVID at sort of the peak. Washington state avoided the predicted COVID-19 surge, partly due to its reaction to a discovery by Dr. Francis Rito. In February, he tested two patients with no connection to infected countries. Both came back positive. What did you think? It was a... uh A moment of recognition, realizing that now everything had changed. Then, the first known COVID-19 death in America occurred here. Washington Governor Jay Inslee took immediate action. I declared an emergency, and so uh, this was an all-points bulletin. Three days after the emergency declaration, we were here. There was a noticeable emptying of the streets. That's because the tech giants headquartered here in Washington, like Amazon and Microsoft urged all their employees who could to stay home before any order. That was not by chance, according to Seattle's mayor. We include them in our plans and conversations from the beginning. The data is really clear. That first phase of having people telecommute and not come downtown really started breaking the back of the virus. The governor then banned gatherings of 250 or more, ordered schools closed, then restaurants and bars. Why not say, all right, we're closing everything down right away.
4: If you're going to lead a parade, you've got to make sure someone's behind you. And if you go too fast and the public is unwilling to accept,
8: then you've lost your connection to your community. It's a page right out of the CDC's pandemic handbook on communication. Finally, the stay-at-home order came. We watched boards go up over businesses. And now, two months later, those boards, beautified by artists, commissioned to remind the public the city is not down and out, just on a break. The world's most famous coffee shop, a Seattle original, is no longer just drive-thru only. The state's largest private employer, Boeing, slowly taking off but cutting its workforce. Empty parks now family playgrounds again. Construction back in business. Washington went from number 1 in US COVID-19 deaths to 18th. Still, there's a slow march to reopening here.
4: And the pace of that will be dictated by the data. It'll be based on what we learn every day. This is very important because as we move away from the blunt instrument of social distancing, towards a smart weapon of testing,
8: contact tracing, and isolation, we have to have that capability up and running. One thing Governor Inslee isn't being praised for, the nursing home at the center of the deadly outbreak went more than a week without any hands-on government help. Or should you have stepped in and said, we got to get people in there faster than this?
4: This corporation had a responsibility for the medical care of their patients. We couldn't just walk in on day one without some coordination with them to really understand the circumstance.
8: But just like hospitals, it was struggling to get testing and worrying about securing protective equipment. And
4: we did not have enough PPE for nurses at many facilities and still don't.
8: You know, he says, though, that there is simply no way his state can fully reopen without enough PPE, without enough testing. And so he's made that very clear. However, This was like seeing a silent movie. This is the famous Pike's Place. And now it is more bustling than we have seen it when I got here in March. You see folks out here. Now, some of these places have been open, Jake, but there just haven't been the customers. There are now we're seeing far more people out here. Commerce, some of them in masks, some of them not. So clearly, the state is starting to reopen and people are starting to respond. Jake.
1: All right, Sarah Seidner in Seattle, Washington. Thank you so much. As food workers continue to contract the virus in those highly dense food plants, a top Trump administration official is now apparently, at least partly, blaming the employees for getting sick. His stunning comments next. Health and Human Services Secretary Alex Azar is being criticized for comments he made about meat plant workers infected with coronavirus. A source tells CNN that on a call with a bipartisan group of lawmakers last month, Azar seem to blame the workers, saying they most likely contracted COVID-19 because of the way they live, as opposed to the difficult and close quarters in the plants themselves. The story was first reported by Politico. I want to bring in CNN's Diane Gallagher. Diane, you've been covering the issue of food shortages and high rates of infections at some of these processing plants. What are you hearing from workers?
9: Jake, they're hurt, but they're not surprised. I talked to several workers at plants that are both closed and those that have recently reopened dealing with outbreaks. And when talking about the secretary's comments... They all said it was something that they'd heard before. Uh, they refuted it, saying that it was simply crazy to feel that way. One meat worker pointed out to me that the whole reason why they wanted these plants to shut down and to make changes is because they didn't want to bring this virus home to their family. Another worker told our colleague, Ann Colwell that... They had heard their company say those exact same type of comments to the workers themselves. And one woman pointed out that there's so much talk about keeping the food supply chain intact right now. Why would you say that about the people who were processing your food right now? Now, Secretary Azar's office did release a statement. I wanna read part of it to you here. Uh, Michael Caputo, the spokesperson saying, Secretary Azar simply made the point that many public health officials have made. In addition to the meatpacking plants themselves, many workers at a certain remote and rural meatpacking facilities have living conditions that involve multifamily and congregate living, which have been conducive to a rapid spread of the disease. Uh, Jake, I want to remind you that nearly two-thirds of meatpacking plants are people of color. About half of them are immigrants.
1: And, And Diane, this is not the first time that plant workers have felt like people in authority have kind of otherized them and diminished their importance.
9: No, not at all. In fact, I hear that quite a bit at almost every level when in that industry kind of, hey, what have you thought about this here? Have you thought about how they live? But it's that dehumanizing language. And we saw another example of it uh, at the Wisconsin Supreme Court, the chief justice. I wanted you to take a listen to what she said.
3: Yeah, due to the meatpacking, though, that's where the Brown County got the flare. It wasn't just the regular folks in Brown County.
9: Yeah, Jake, I would say that the people who work in those plants are regular folks as well.
1: All right, Diane Gallagher, thank you so much. Masked firefighters in White Plains, New York, said goodbye to their department's deputy chief, Edward Sioka, paying respects outside his funeral on Tuesday, the 62-year-old third-generation firefighter. Died Friday from coronavirus. Fellow firefighters described him as a loving fa- father, a stalwart leader, and a caring friend who was calm, cool, and collected, whether inside a burning building or in command of operations from the outside. Chris Ang- Angelin Castro-Guzman was a 35-year-old nurse. The mother of three, including a four-month-old baby, had just ended maternity leave and returned to work at a nursing home outside Chicago. She contracted the virus there. She died Saturday. Her husband, Omar, who worked with her at that same nursing home, also just tested positive for coronavirus. May their memories be a blessing. We'll be right back. Just then this afternoon, the Justice Department is dropping its criminal case against President Trump's former National Security Advisor, retired General Michael Flynn. Flynn, as you may recall, was charged with lying to the FBI about his contacts, With Russian officials, moments ago, the president reacted to the news.
4: I didn't know that was uh, happening at this moment. Uh, I felt it was going to happen just by watching and seeing like everybody else does. Uh, He was an innocent man. He is a uh, great gentleman. He was targeted by the Obama
10: administration
1: course, it was the Trump administration that was prosecuting the case against General Flynn. Former FBI deputy director Andrew McCabe said in response to the news, quote, today's move by the Justice Department has nothing to do with the facts or the law. It is pure politics designed to please the president, unquote. CNN's Sarah Murray joins me now. Sarah, President Trump has called Flynn innocent. He conf- he confessed his guilt in open court, and the judge even ruminated as to why he wasn't being charged with a tougher crime. Why drop a case against somebody who has already admitted his guilt?
10: Well, it's certainly a very unusual set of circumstances that's going on and in this filing. What the Justice Department says is this interview where Flynn lied, was untethered to and unjustified by the FBI's counterintelligence investigation into Flynn. It goes on to say that the Justice Department cannot say without a reasonable doubt that Michael Flynn lied and that those lies were substantial. Obviously, this is very different from what the Justice Department has been saying now for years. And it comes as Bill Barr you know, is now leading the Justice Department. He's brought in outside. U.S. attorneys to take a look at some of these convictions. And this is what we are now seeing in this filing is really an about face when it comes to these charges against Michael Flynn, Jake.
1: And what does it mean that the prosecutor in the case withdrew from the case right before this all went down, which also we should note happened with Trump confidant uh, Roger Stone right before he was sentenced?
10: That's exactly right, Jagan. It was Brandon Van Grack. He was the lead prosecutor who struck this, you know, this plea deal with Michael Flannery. withdrew just before this filing came out. He didn't give a reason in his filing as to why he was withdrawing, but you know, we saw. Roger Stone. It was all of these prosecutors that pulled their their names off of it. And it was a clear signal that they didn't agree with what the Justice Department is doing. It's certainly possible, maybe even likely, that that is what Brandon Van Grack is doing. I think it's also notable, Jake, that this filing is not signed by any career prosecutors at the Justice Department. It is signed by a political appointee. That's it. That's pretty unusual.
1: And I know that this is already being Uh, Attorney General Barr is already being accused of creating a special justice system just for President Trump's
10: friends. Absolutely. I mean, you see that from the McCabe statement you just read. We we have a statement out from Adam Schiff, the intelligence chairman, saying that this doesn't really have anything to do with justice, that this has to do with politics. And so I certainly think that you can expect a lot of blowback coming Bill Barr's way from Democrats as well as from former officials at the FBI, Jake.
1: All right, Sarah Murray, thank you so much for this breaking news update. We appreciate it. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Stay healthy. Stay safe. When you work, you work next level. when you play, you play next level. And when it's
0: time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store.